because what you had on one side was a person in this trans alliance community that probably spends a lot of time with people that experience gender dysphoria, but is not investing a lot of time thinking about the logical inconsistencies of the ideology. Then you've got someone on the other side of the fence focusing all their mental energies on the mental of the logical inconsistencies while probably not having a single friendship with the person who identifies as trans. And as a result, all they're doing is talking past each other. And so what we've got to do is kind of put the guns down for a little bit and enter into dialogue of like, okay, tell me about your experience. Like, help me to understand where you're coming from on this. So you don't think that I hate you because I might disagree with you on some of this. But until we can sit down and have a coffee and share our lives with these people, this rhetoric will prevail of we just hate each other, which I really don't think is true. Welcome to the Huntley Leadership Podcast, helping leaders be a positive catalyst in the people they support, the organizations they serve, and the communities they live. This podcast will make you think, laugh, and grit your teeth with new determination to make your parish or business place of transformation, passion, and purpose. If you're still breathing, you are powered for impact. Hello and welcome back to the Huntley Leadership Podcast. I hope you have a coffee in your hand, your notebook, and you're ready to take some notes. Today's going to be an incredible conversation. My guest today is Jason Everett. Jason does a lot of uh, work in the area of human sexuality, and his latest book is titled Male, Female, Other. A Catholic Guide to Understanding Gender. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back on. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. What What have you been learning? I know you travel a lot, really bringing uh, both truth and hope and, and mercy to, to places all over the world, really. But, but what have you been learning that made you decide to write this book? I think what I learned is how little I knew <laughs> in my travels the last 26 years. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff go on with the culture of young people in the high schools and universities, but something took place in the last five, 10 years or so. Honestly, I didn't see coming of just this hockey stick acceleration of young people wrestling with their sexual identity. Um, you know, and they'd come up to me after the assembly and say, hey, you know, I'm bi and non-binary. How do I tell my mom that? And it's like, okay, well, we've got these new questions to navigate. And we've got parents coming up to me and saying, hey, I'm going through a custody battle uh, with my ex-husband and he's wanting my daughter to transition and I lost custody. And now they want to have this gender affirming surgery for my 16 year old daughter. And I'm devastated. And what can I do? A priest coming up to me of just like, okay, I don't know how to really pastorally address this whole gender fluid, non-binary thing. I mean, I, I went to seminary. They didn't talk to us about this stuff. So everybody kind of scrambling for looking for answers of what does it mean to be human and how do we offer our young people and parents and educators a response to this whole question on gender uh, that has plenty of clarity, but at the same time, charity. Like, how do we balance those Probably things right. instead of just dismissing it or just trying to d disprove it of this non-binary trans woman gender fluid nonsense? It's either XX or XY. We need a better response than just trying to, like, <laughs> win an argument. And so that was the fuel behind the book. That's, that's a beautiful motivation. It's such a pure motivation because it, it's going to take some, some intellectual fuel to sit down to process it, to think it through and not just come to snap decisions that can bring so much division because we want to love people, right? We want to connect. We want to understand and, and we want to be faithful to, to what God has revealed to us. And so break this down for us. What if you, how are you tackling this and uh, give me some insights? Yeah. Well, one girl came up to me two weeks ago at an assembly and he said, she said, you know, I, 
I told my mom I'm non-binary and she got angry at me and we got in this big fight. And, and I said, okay, well, let's, let's go back to that conversation. And uh, we're going to try it a second time. Only I'm going to be your mom this time and you be you. And I want you to explain to me non-binary, but you're not allowed to use the word non-binary. Now go. And she said, okay, well, I want to be able to do things that mostly boys do. And I want to be free to be able to do some of the stuff that girls do too, and not have to always like what girls like and always like what boys like, but be somewhere in the middle to have my own interests and hobbies and the ways I want to express myself. And I'm like, I'm tracking with you. And I'm like, you know what? Your mom would not have a difficulty with any of what you just presented. The challenge is we don't have in our vocabulary anymore words like tomboy. And so what we've got to do is come up with these new words like non-binary. And for a lot of adults, it's like, what? No, you're a girl. Get over it. Um, and it's like, okay, you're, you're missing that I'm, this young person is searching for, for a vocabulary that resonates with their lived experience of feeling hemmed in by these overly rigid gender stereotypes. And they're finding freedom and a sense of identity in these new emerging gender identities. And it's like, wait a minute, your identity isn't just a rebellion against stereotypes. Because if that's who you are, then you're actually allowing the stereotypes to define you of saying like, look, I don't fit into this box of what culture says woman is. And so then I'm just not part of the club. And so I guess I'm not a woman. And it's like, do you realize how much power we're giving to stereotypes of letting them dictate no. to us our own sexual identity? And so I just gently walk the girl through all of this and just say, hey, next time you revisit this conversation with your mom, don't try to die on that hill of the word non-binary. Try right. to share with her your heart of when you started feeling this and what it's like. And I'll bet you your mom's going to hear that. And she's going to listen to you and not just try to disprove you or dismiss you. So we need these tools as young people, educators, and parents to navigate through these difficult questions of sexual identity without compromising the truth who God created us to be as male and female. Wow. That's so helpful. I never thought about it as simple a term as we're struggling for a language. We're struggling for a vocabulary to help express what we're experiencing. And, and I think in many ways, and please push back, culture is giving us a set of vocabulary. And it's like, OK, <laughs> well, we don't I don't want to choose that one. So I guess I'll choose this one. So it's a like it. it now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's mystifying for people kind of on the outside of this whole experience. There was a university in England, the University of Essex, I think it was, that in their uh, trans alliance community or whatever on campus announced that there's actually an infinite number of genders. And so some guy on the internet reached out and he's like, oh, I was wondering if you could email me that list you have of the infinite list of genders. And they emailed him back with like a list of 24. And he said, well, if there's an infinite number, you can surely do better than 24. Come on, how about a list of just 500 to get this started? And they said, look, well, you can't list them all because some are unknown or unrecognized. And he said, well, then how can you count them if they're unknown? He said, might I suggest the reason you can't furnish your list of an infinite number of genders is because it would take you forever to write the list. And even if you could write it down, the entire universe could not contain it, even if you used really tiny font. And it's like, okay, did he win the argument? Hands down, he won. But is anybody better off for this whole exchange? No. Because what you had on one side was a person in this trans alliance community that probably spends a lot of time with people that experience mm -hmm. gender dysphoria, but is not investing a lot of time thinking about the logical inconsistencies of the ideology. Then you've right. got someone on the other side of the fence focusing all their mental energies on the mental of the logical inconsistencies 
while probably not having a single friendship with the person who identifies as trans. And as a result, all they're doing is talking past each other. And so what we've got to do is kind of put the guns down for a little bit and enter into dialogue of like, okay, tell me about your experience. Like, help me to understand where you're coming from on this. So you don't think that I hate you because I might disagree with you on some of this. But until we can sit down and have a coffee and share our lives with these people, this rhetoric will prevail of we just hate each other, which I really don't think is true. No, I don't think that's true either. I do find it confusing. Like growing up, I'm 50. Four. I have to think about that for a second. And uh, that it just wasn't much of an issue. You know, I, I was, as I was getting ready to talk to you today, I was thinking, wait a minute. I remember being 16 and there was a fellow who lived in a house and, and every now and again, he would be, you'd see him on the streets wearing a skirt and high heels and, and he was clearly a man. And yeah. I remember that was the only person and everybody in Halifax knew him. And he was like, Oh, that's that guy. Yeah. Uh, and so there was, I guess. Uh, but it, it really wasn't anything I would have had to deal with or see growing up. And so watching my kids who are in their early twenties, you know, going through junior high and high school with them, it was an issue. And, yeah. and, and I thought, wow, okay. Like I, I wasn't really equipped to handle it. I wasn't really equipped to have conversations about it. I didn't understand it. I couldn't relate to it. Yeah. No, I mean, I remember a similar thing. This is probably 20, 25 years ago when I first moved to San Diego. Uh, there was this guy that would kind of roam the streets of La Jolla in a dress with his shopping cart. And everybody's yeah. like, oh, you know, there's that guy. And like, do you know who yeah. that? Well, like, what's his story? And I heard someone say, yeah, I heard his like mom died or something. And, you know, and that's all we knew about the guy. Um, yeah, there right. wasn't like, well, maybe I should go see if he wants to have coffee. Like maybe I should enter actually try to enter into this human being's life instead of kind of seeing him as this almost like a leper. Like, okay, he goes on that side of the street. We go on that side of the street. It's like, that's not, not how Christ would have engaged these people. The challenge is there's often a lot of stuff going on in these individuals' lives beyond simply expressing their identity in a gender nonconforming way. There's a lot of stuff going on. In fact, there was a gender clinic in the United Kingdom that was actually recently shut down uh, because they were not really helping the young people as they should that did one audit of the young people coming in who are seeking gender affirmative transitional care. And what they found is they looked at 125 of these young people mm-hmm. and found out that 98% of them had coexisting mental health challenges, whether it was autism, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety disorders, depression, oh. a history of trauma, family abuse, all these other things going on. But what this oh. clinic would do is flatten all these layers of complexity into one diagnosis, trance, which means there's really only one treatment pathway, which is transition. They didn't have the staffing to be able to help these young people look at these co- this almost constellation of mental health challenges, but rather would tell these young people that the body is the problem. You know, so if yeah. we can just use the body almost like this false target of intervention, yeah. then you're going to have a sense of control over your life and these problems will go away. But then the surgeries are over, the anesthesia wears off, the surgical dressings are removed, and the young people look at their body and realize that none of their problems have gone away. They've just created new ones. Mm. Wow. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I have a, somebody I know who every time they get a cold, they, they think they need an antibiotic. And so they go to the doctor and say, I need an antibiotic. And yeah. God bless the doctors. I think they give it to the most of the time. Yeah. Knowing full well Good they business. shouldn't. Right? Cause, yeah. right? It's, it's not helpful. Uh, you know, builds up resistance and everything else. But the, I guess the bottom line is he, he's not going in saying, here are my symptoms. How can I help? He's going uh-huh. in saying, this is the solution. And it seems to me, and again, I'd love your feedback because I do not know. Uh, uh, but uh, the people are going in saying, I need 
whatever. Yeah. Like, this is who I am. Therefore, this is what I need. They're not asking for help as, uh, or they're not asking for a diagnosis. They're asking for, um, I don't know. Yeah. The, the, they're, you know, yeah. Yeah. And this is really the only field of medicine where they're letting children kind of lead the way of like, well, I'm 13, you know, I'm trans and I want puberty blockers, cross sex hormones and a double mastectomy. Like, okay, well, like you wouldn't let the kid diagnose themselves with basically anything else at the age of 13. Yeah. But here they're like, well, we have to affirm. It's like, wait a minute, are we actually affirming the person or are we affirming dysphoria? And that's what's going on is we're actually contributing to a mental illness instead of actually treating it. I know one anesthesiologist who told me he's already informed the other doctors at his hospital. Don't even approach him if you want him to give anesthesia to a patient undergoing one of these procedures. Because he said, I've already seen the medical charts. I've seen all the comorbidities going on in their lives. In fact, I remember at this gender clinic over in the United Kingdom, 35 of their psychologists quit because they were not being allowed to address these deeper concerns. One of the psychiatrists who was treating patients who are adults who had already had these surgeries and they still needed continued mental health assistance. And then he was also treating another group of, of adults who wanted to surgically transition in different kind of patient populations. And he had an idea, well, what if I brought these two groups together? These right. post-operative individuals and the pre-operative individuals, and I gave them an opportunity to spend time together, you know, in a controlled setting and a counseling group. And he said, once I did that, a fascinating thing happened. 98% of the adults who previously said they wanted to surgically transition decided they no longer wanted surgery after having talked to those who pursued that path as a, a form of resolution to their dysphoria. And so if you've got 98% of adults desisting after spending time with those who had transitions, it's kind of an indication this is a false treatment pathway. And some people say, well, no, there are people who go through the surgeries and they yeah. are they say it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And this was a great decision and I'm happier afterwards than I was before. What do you do with those cases? Well, it's almost like having an individual who experiences, you know, a body dysmorphia of like an eating disorder of like, mm -hmm. I, I'm 85 pounds, but I think I'm fat. Could I relieve that person's dysphoria by giving them diet pills and liposuction? Probably. I could make them feel a little better for a while. But does that mean that that's the right treatment pathway for anyone who's dysphoric about their weight? And so we've got to really look. There's more going on here than just your body is the problems and your feelings reveal reality. No, oftentimes our feelings mislead us into thinking that if I can just do this to my body, then the problem is going to go away. And the research backs this up. They show that within 10 years after these surgeries, these individuals' suicide rates climb to 19 times higher than the general population. And it's not because, oh, well, it's a transphobic culture out there. Um, no, it's because 90% of people who commit suicide have a diagnosable mental health disorder. And hormones and surgery are not the way you treat that. Wow. So I, I used to be in the pharmaceutical industry, and I remember I used to have to read all kinds of white papers. And then you'd go in and you'd talk to the physicians, and you'd be presenting white papers and breaking it down and di yeah. going back and forth. And half the time they'd say, yeah, I don't like that research. I don't buy it. I mean, every yeah. research, 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 evidence base. And what's the medical community saying now? Like, this just doesn't seem to jive with my experience as a salesman years ago in pharmaceuticals. You know, when you just look at the drugs they're using, like Lupron, I mean, this is a puberty blocking drug that's actually given to chemically castrate male sex offenders, and they're giving it to eight-year-old kids so they don't go through the wrong puberty. 
it's like, well, wait a minute, this is being used off label. This has never been approved by the FDA as a puberty blocker. Uh, sometimes it's be being given to treat precocious puberty where puberty is starting too early and they kind of want to block it until the right window of development happens. But it's never been used to stop puberty when it should be happening. Because if you don't undergo puberty when you should, that's a disease. It's called Coleman syndrome. And so we're actually inducing a diseased state in children. And it doesn't just pause puberty. It pauses neurological development. It pauses bone development. We're now seeing cases of like 15-year-old kids who have osteoporosis like an 80-year-old where their knuckles are breaking, their wrists are breaking, their ankles are breaking. And they're like, wow, you know, I've broken five bones in the last year and it never happened before I was on puberty blockers. What's going to shift the tide on this is the lawsuits, and they're already coming in because you've got to understand these pharmaceutical industries, obviously, they have deep pockets. But once you reach a tipping point of lawsuits where the shareholders realize the liability of these lawsuits is outweighing the revenue we're generating from the pharmaceutical sales, then it's no longer worth it. Until that tipping point happens, the profitability is still there. And so we've got to understand this isn't just, oh, well, what's in the best interest of our gender non-conforming 13-year-olds? No, this is reaching the point of a multi-billion dollar industry. I know of one woman who had gone through numerous surgeries. And she said, yeah, I just added up the bills of my surgery so far, uh, and it's over $1 million. That's for one individual. Now you multiply this out globally, and the numbers are staggering. Wow. And so I, I, let me just process this for a second. I was just thinking about a time when, uh, you know, I, I remember when uh, Viagra came out. That was a failed drug that was supposed to help with blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And it didn't work. But what they noticed in the male uh, patients that they were having erections, it's like, wait a minute, it increased blood flow in the penis. So, OK, we have a solution to a disease that doesn't exist. And so they made up a yeah. disease called erectile dysfunction. They yeah. talked about it. They promoted the disease so that they could bring a solution to the disease, um, which, you know, and, and so what I'm hearing you say is that. You're not saying it explicitly, but is money driving a lot of what's happening here in terms of surgeries and medications and everything else? You you think that's what's fueling some of this uh, social, you know, this, this sociology frenzy around dysphoria? I mean, without a doubt, there's a lot of factors that are fueling it. And to look at this, we need to think of it as almost like, okay, there's this big flowing flooded river that's just taking villages mm -hmm. with it downstream. Where did yep. all this water come from? Well, I mean, you could have some melted snow caps and they're creating some of it. Maybe there was torrential rainfall upstream. Maybe there's a dam that's broken upstream. There's some underground streams that, you know, springs that have burst forth. All of these things are going on. And so we've got pornography. We've got social media. We've got the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, we've got all these things flooding at, at the same time. And if you want to even go down the conspiracy rabbit hole of like the money that's behind this, the big pharma, the big tech, the big state, uh, it's there. And it's scary stuff in terms of population control people behind this, because if you could just sterilize a thousand people in one year, OK, do that for 10, 15 years. And now if each person typically reproduces two people 
and you start putting that out generationally, you will have eliminated like a million people within the span of a couple of generations only by sterilizing about a thousand a year. I mean, the math is there and you look at the people funding some of this stuff, very deep pockets who personally themselves identify as trans and even, you know, adult businessmen that have fetishes of dressing like women that are funding these things to an, in a sense, kind of you know, make it public that this type of thing is okay. Like there's some really scary stuff when you actually start diving into it. Now I'm not ready to say, well, that's the hundred percent cause of where this is coming from because gender dysphoria is a real thing. I mean, we've got four-year-old kids wrestling with their sexual identity that have never watched a TikTok video that have not been influenced by the pharmaceutical industry, but they're living in this culture that if I am wondering, you know, I don't feel quite at home with the guys, And then I see uh, these shows on TV and I see these ads on Instagram. When I get my cell phone at the age of 12, it's lighter Mm -hmm. fluid, you know, creating this blaze Mm -hmm. that otherwise could have been put out quite simply. I remember when I was a little boy, I remember, I don't know what I was, you know, first, second grade. Star Wars were coming out. I had a crush on Princess Leia. And my parents like, what do you want to be for Halloween? I'm like, I want to be Princess Leia. And my dad's like, uh, we're just going to be a robot. I'm like, all right, robot's good. We'll go in that direction. But like, if I, like, I didn't know how to express that, you know, that interest I had in this female figure without trying to embody that. And so if I grew up now, though, and I had like this progressive set of parents, like, oh, well, maybe our right. son is gender expansive. You could easily see how it could be taken down the wrong path. Oh, it's so funny you say that because I remember Halloween myself. Like we had no money, and so Halloween, you were one of two things: you either wore your mother's clothes or you were a hobo, and we yeah. didn't think anything <laughs> of it. Like we just get in mom's closet, we'd all get dressed up, and then we go with yeah. that bag and get the. But it never crossed. But like you say, if it progressive parents, so oh, look at that guy. He likes to be a girl. No, I don't. I like candy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, poor. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, not poor, but not a lot of money. Yeah. You know, we were yeah, wear what I need to wear to get the Snickers. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. So, Jason, you talk about that example and what what a beautiful uh, what a beautiful role play you did with that lady, that young girl, at, at, when you were at that conference. I just think that's so cool. Let's let's do that role play the other way, like as a parent, like yeah. so your your child's coming to you, and and you know what do you say, like you know I think, yeah. but for the grace of God, go I. Like that could have happened to me. It hasn't, mm-hmm. but you know, uh, you know, it's, yeah. Like, well, what do you say? How do you how do well, you the- help? The key is what you say is you listen. And what I mean by that is the first thing I would say is like, let's not freak out here. Let's not try to win a debate in five minutes and pull out the science textbooks and say, look, you're XX. That's what it is. No, you say, wow, like, thank you for trusting me with that information. I'll bet you it was really scary for you to tell me that because you've probably been thinking about telling me for a while, but afraid that I'm going to freak out and yell at you and take away your friends and your phone and everything. Tell me, like, when did you start feeling this way? How long has this been going on? What types of things trigger the dysphoria? Is it the clothing? Is it the social expectations? Where are you learning about this from? You know, is there a particular mm-hmm. influence on Instagram that you've been seeing an influencer? What about friends at school? Or like, where have you learned about this? And asking them questions. Well, can you explain to me your understanding of gender? without referencing gender stereotypes. What do you mean by that? And so we're asking them these challenging questions. Like I said, we'll explain non-binary without using the word. We're gonna gently ask them and lead them towards the truth by asking them the right questions. Because one of the best indicators of the mental well-being of individuals who experience gender dysphoria is the connection they have with their families. 
And if right. the parents freak out and scream at them and just ground them for the rest of their natural life, obviously <laughs> not a good approach. And the parents obviously love their child, but they don't, their parents are puzzled. Like, what the heck is this? Where did this come from? What are you talking about? You never had this growing right. up. And then all of a sudden you say you're, you know, gender fluid. And it's understandable because sometimes it's something called rapid onset gender dysphoria. And that term came from a woman named Dr. Lisa Littman, who is not a conservative right-wing transphobic person. This is a person who worked for Planned Parenthood, very progressive, but started noticing this trend within the clinical literature that a lot of the people that are identifying as trans are not historically what it used to be. Because we've got more than a century of clinical literature on the subject, and it's very clear. It predominantly affects boys and middle-aged men. But then in the last decade and a half, we've seen this massive inversion of the sex ratio and an astronomical rise of adolescent females identifying as trans with no pre-existing history of gender dysphoria as children. And they typically will go to a public school, typically have more progressive parents. They tend to be upper middle class Caucasian don't have much of a history of dating and spending a lot of time on social media and are at a school where a handful of friends will come out as trans or non-binary. And before you know it, I'm trans too. And there's a social contagion element that they were seeing. And so now this doesn't describe everybody, but it does describe a sizable chunk of the mm. population who identifies as trans. Now, others within the trans community don't like the ROGD label because like, wait, that doesn't resonate with me. I didn't choose this because of some adolescent girl on TikTok. I've been wrestling this since I was six years old, and that was the 1980s, before we had phones. And so this is not a label that identifies everybody, gotcha. but it does identify a sizable chunk of young people who are influenced socially by this. All these new emerging labels that seem to resonate with them, when they don't feel like they are finding their identity and their community and their mission within the church – and all of a sudden they hear these labels like, yeah, that's what I feel. I'm asexual because I think sex is disgusting because all I've ever seen of it was what those kids showed me in junior high around the cafeteria table on their cell phones. And that was so repulsive as a 15-year-old girl. I want nothing to do with that. I must be Man. asexual. It's like, wait a minute. Again, you're, you're looking for something that resonates with your lived experience. And some of these new labels are offering them this. And so we've got to be able to walk mm. with them through this of like, yeah, there's a, there's a, we need to kind of listen what I would say to gender dysphoria with reverent curiosity, because there's an underlying ache or need or trauma very often that isn't being addressed. I remember one boy coming to me and say, he's trans. We started talking and it turned out he had two older sisters, two younger sisters, and the parents just fawned over the girls, just doted over them. But he was like the black sheep of the family. And I said, well, do you think if you were born a girl, you would have been loved the way your sisters are loved? And he said, I know I would have been. And to me, it's like, okay, here we are. His ache isn't to be female. His ache is to be loved. But he saw female identity as yeah. his pathway to the affirmation he never received from his parents. And so um, so we've got to listen to the deeper stories instead of just diagnosing the kids, you're trans. Wow. Man, Jason, there's a lot. There's a lot. I love the listening one. I was just talking to a, a lady just before you and I got on the phone. And uh, and she was saying that 94% of people live in an affirmation deficit. <laughs> she was talking about she was talking about leadership coaching and, and just the whole idea of understanding your strength themes and all this stuff and starting to have a language to understand how you're fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And as you start to process that, as you start to unpack that, 
you start to realize, oh, this is how I was created. This is who I am. And isn't that cool? And when you have a coach yeah. to help you with that, it's like, it's like a superpower. It's like, yahoo. Like, I know who I am. I know why I'm here. And, and sometimes as we do that in leadership, we can help other people understand that too. And then we can work better in teams. And almost, I'm just linking those two things together in terms of families and kids. Sometimes it can be hard to connect with your kids in a meaningful way. They don't talk a lot, especially yeah. boys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, not helpful. Uh, you know, I don't know. There's a lot there. Like, where does God fit into that in, in terms of our identity? Because, you know, I, I do a lot of work with uh, parishes and pastors and dioceses, and, you know, the church and the school is such a, such a odd juxtaposition because they don't really they want to collaborate the hearts there but yeah it just doesn't happen and so you have people growing up going to catholic schools but they're no more catholic than than their cat a lot of times and so yeah. you know yeah. i and so they have this confusion though because they probably think they are because they went to a catholic school and i mean i don't know i find that whole thing confusing um but where where do they where does god fit in for those people like what what do you how does a parent help them yeah, I mean, a couple of thoughts there. I mean, one in terms of affirmation, I remember reading a book back in college that one of our professors assigned to the class called uh, Recognizing, it was called Healing the Unaffirmed, Recognizing Deprivation Neurosis. And this was a, a title yeah. given uh, by a couple of doctors, Barr and Trua, that talked about if we don't receive the developmentally necessary level of human affirmation, we typically remain at the developmental age at which that was deprived of us. And so if you've got a kid that really wasn't affirmed beyond like a four-year-old uh, from his mother, yeah. from his father, from his environment, he might progress to be a 28-year-old man, but effectively, emotionally, in many respects, he remains stunted in his development where we're seeing these labile emotional reactions where there's this childish uh, ups and downs, temper tantrums in a grown man that you shouldn't see. And their proposal was that he really wasn't given the necessary level of affirmation growing up. And so he remained emotionally stunted. And so right. this goes for everybody, not just a gender, you know, people sure. wrestling with gender yeah, dysphoria. Yeah. Um, we all wrestle with this, I think, to some extent. But in terms of where God steps into the equation, I think God really is the only one who gets these individuals. And what I mean by that is even if you're part of like some GLAD or Spectrum Alliance or like gender affirming club on campus, they mm. could commiserate with you to a level of what it's like to live with that feeling of disconnect. But really only God is the one who knows like the tears right. that have landed on your pillow in the middle of the night when no one else was around and you felt like even your family didn't understand you, your school didn't understand you, you didn't even understand yourself. Like he was the one there in that darkness. And you read kind of the Psalms, the Old Testament, right. where it's this soul crying out to God of like, my one companion is darkness. It's like, those are the moments that you think that God is gone, but he's the only one that's actually with you through all of that. And yeah. so just to know that God sees you and he knows you're suffering and he knows you didn't choose to feel this way and know that you're not a walking abomination to God because you wrestle with your sexual identity. A lot of the people are plagued by this shame that they're forever displeasing God because they don't feel at home in their body. Like, why did he do this to me? I didn't sign up for this. I didn't ask for this. And they think that they're condemned to hell because they experienced gender dysphoria. And that's why Christians need to really lean in with love and compassion and listening instead of just winning their hot little debate points to score some more points on an Instagram. 
Like, no, we need to actually listen, enter in, um, and journey with these people. Cause they, they're not really looking for someone who has all the answers. They're looking for someone who can walk with them through this, knowing that it's not going to be some overnight fix. Um, the dysphoria, even if you pray a lot might not go away and it might even be a part of the journey that God's inviting you on. And it, it could take some time and we don't know if it's going to go away, but your holiness it is not measured by your ability to resolve your dysphoria. That's not how holy God thinks you are. Like, well, I've been praying mm-hmm. about this for two years. I'm still dysphoric. I must be displeasing to God. Actually, you're just, you're exercising heroic virtue in this. You're actually <laughs> living the mass. Like you're saying in your own body, this is my body given up for you, God. I don't understand these feelings, but I trust you. And I trust that you have a plan for my body, even though it's a a cause of distress for me. And so many individuals can ascend great levels of sanctity, even if their dysphoria never resolves. And they need to hear that message that like there's room for them in the church to navigate through this difficult question. And we understand it isn't just something that might go away. It could go away and like 80 to 95% of the time for children, it resolves on its own by the time they finish puberty. That's why it's such a bad mm-hmm. plan to just jump into all these puberty blockers because usually it'll go away, but sometimes it doesn't. And we need to have a realistic understanding of that so we can walk with these individuals in truth and love. Yeah, that's so cool. I, I remember the whole, you know, Job was crying out to God and just he didn't have a lot of good things to say. He wasn't real happy with God and his plighted life. And, oh, yeah. and God God was praising him to his friends like, like yeah. this is the guy, like. Because he was taking it to God, like even his dis- dissatisfaction, his frustration, his, his, he was taking it to God. He was living a life of prayer. It doesn't always have to be, you know, everything's going yeah. great. Isn't this wonderful? I just give you praise because my life is lovely. Like if you feel that way, enjoy it for 10 minutes. Something's probably going to hit you the next little while. And yeah. gonna, like welcome to the human experience. It's tricky. Now, too, I, I think to myself for parents, because Again, in the work that I do in churches, one of the number one things pastors and leadership teams say to me is that we just have to connect with those school parents because like if 5% go to church, that's a, a massive amount of Catholic church school or Catholic school people that go to church. 95% of them don't even go to church. And no. so, you know, poor principals and teachers are wrestling with these issues parents all of a sudden start wrestling with issues but very few of them are wrestling with faith they're just, it's not it's not been an active part of their that conversation that they have with their kids and stuff so as parents what's your advice to them it's like crud i put them in a catholic school i thought that would be good enough i don't know what to do we don't pray we don't go to church we don't have a yeah. relationship with jesus what do you say to them yeah, the, the parents are not only the primary sex educators of their kids, they're the primary evangelists of the kids. Mm-hmm. And the challenge is a lot of parents didn't have their own set of parents who are evangelistic in nature, so they don't really know where to begin. So they mm-hmm. just, okay, I'll sign the kid up for Catholic school, and that should take care of everything. It's like, no, 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 this isn't some like little daycare for the faith. <laughs> and it's like, you drop them off, we'll, you know, we'll teach them their alphabet and send them home. No, they've got to see this with their own eyes. They've got to receive the faith by osmosis at home as opposed to compartmentalizing their faith. Oh yeah, that's hour three of school when I'm in the religion department. It's like, no, 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 this needs to be something that permeates their life. And so it's gotta begin with Sunday mass, Grace before meals, great. Go to confession maybe once a month as a family if you're Catholic. If you're not Catholic, yeah. I mean, open up the scriptures to pray together, bedtime prayer, morning prayer, uh, you know, a little prayer on the way to school. You get an app like the Hollow app that has some good prayers that the kids could listen to or the adults could listen to. Like, find yeah. ways to sanctify the family. And ultimately, it comes yeah. down to my own interior life. 
Like, I'm not going to be a better father to my sons than I am a son to the father. If I don't know how to receive the love of God, how am I supposed to transmit that to my own children? And so mm-hmm. we've got to realize, instead of like, oh, how do I fix those kids? It's like, am I taking my own interior life seriously or not? I mean, Pope yeah. John Paul II, when he was a young boy, his uh, mom died, his brother died. And he said, I remember after my mom died, he said, my father's life became one of almost constant prayer. He said, sometimes I would wake up at night, I'd look in my father's room, and I'd see him kneeling on the floor, just kind of lost in prayer. And he learned from that, like men pray, like men take their interior lives seriously. I remember talking to a friend of mine. He's like, oh, do you remember Matt from college? I'm like, yeah, I remember the guy. I didn't know him well. He's like, yeah, I was just talking to him the other day. And he told me that we were having a deep conversation. He talks about it. He gets up at about 4.30 every morning. So he's got two hours of morning prayer before his wife mm-hmm. and kids wake up. So he knows the game plan spiritually for the family for the day. And I was like, wow, like I get up a little early for prayer, but it, it ain't that. It ain't two hours. And it just, it was a, it, it's, I've been, been ruminating on that, like for months in that conversation of like, do mm. I take my own prayer life seriously enough? Or am I just expecting uh-huh. God to fix my kids? Cause I don't want to do the heavy lifting. Mm. Amen. Amen. And that's a great call out to fathers too. Eh? Like, boy, we can really support each other and, and, and help each other to, to grow in holiness and, and, and begin to wrap our heads around this stuff. Because when we do, man, it's such a blessing to our whole family. Like, you know, we got this. Like, come on, yeah. <laughs> saying, come on, we got this. Like, let's do this. Let's, let's not let our family down. It's too important. And that's not to say that people who are families that are close to Christ and, and, and celebrating sacraments, kids may not go through this. So that's not what I'm saying. Um, because I'm sure that happens too. But uh, anyway, it's such a, it's such a helpful book. So what's your hope for this book? And I, I know too, and I, I just want to say this. I hope everybody goes and gets the book, male, female, or other. And it's a great, it's probably a great conversation starter for families, but this can be used in churches. Like it, you have discounts if you buy in bulk. Like, I mean, holy jumpings. Like this is, I hope everybody reads this because I, I, you know, we yeah, need to we have to have these conversations with love and, and and truth and charity, right? Yeah. So how we broke down the book is the top 18 questions or claims made by gender theorists of, well, well, you know, gender is a social construct and puberty blockers are helpful and surgery is harmless and you should use a person's preferred pronoun and just all these different things that we hear. <laughs> I was at a university in uh, Wisconsin and it's mandatory for every student who wants to graduate the university to take a whole semester in gender studies. Doesn't matter if you're going to be an engineer, a nurse, a secondary education, <laughs> professor, whatever. You got to sit in a whole semester of this stuff. And for a lot of these students, they're sitting in a classroom just imbibing this message of like, well, there aren't two sexes. Sex itself is a spectrum. And it's like, because like, um, okay, I don't even know how to respond to all this. But if I raise my hand and object, then I'm labeled as this transphobic bigot and I'm going to get shattered down. So I'll just shut up and nod my head. They have no idea how to respond to these claims in an intelligent manner. And so the book has got more than a thousand references in the endnote section of peer-reviewed scientific journals that dive into these issues. So you're able to respond with clarity and charity. It gives pastoral advice. Well, what if my kid's wrestling with this? Mm -hmm. Personal advice. What if I've got gender dysphoria? What does God think about me? And so it dives into all these really tricky subjects and walks it through. Because it was a challenging book to write because I, I finished like 15 books. I think, okay, I'll read 15 books on it. Combine that with my pastoral experience. I'll be ready to go. I finished those. I'm like, I haven't even scratched the surface. Like I need to read five more books on endocrinology, five more on pediatric medicine, five more on psychology, five more on Marxism, on feminism, on anthropology, spirituality, psychology. And after reading about 20,000 pages of literature, felt like, okay, now I'm in a better place to kind of speak into this subject because at the end, man is a mystery. 
And you don't just need to look at it from a psychological perspective, but a spiritual, a theological anthropology, you know, medicine, all these different angles. And so that's what we try to do in the book Mm -hmm. is to give resources to individuals, educators, parents, priests. And so, like you said, we offer it in bulk because we want schools yeah. to give this out, um, parishes to pass it out. Because like you said, it's not just like these liberal parents struggling with this. Like, no, I know very devout Catholic families who've done totally everything funny. right that had one kid that just went totally off the rails. Like, wait a minute. We raised you the same way we raised your sibling who became a priest. And now you want to transition and marry someone of the other gender who's transitioning to your sex. Like, what do we do wrong? Like, don't beat yourself up. I mean, I like to think of St. Therese of Lisieux. She became a saint. Her mom was a saint. Her dad was a saint. And her sister got kicked out of Catholic boarding school three times for behavioral problems. And I like, I love it. Okay. We have free will. And so don't beat yourself up as a parent, maybe get the resources and it'll help you to give the language that you need to better understand your child, your nephew, coworker, or whatever. Jason, thanks for making the time to, to care so much for the church, for the work that you do, that you would do all that research, synthesize it so that you can equip parents like me and, and, and people that are wrestling with this stuff so that we can engage in it in a way that we can listen to each other and learn mm-hmm. and grow and, and hopefully surrender it all to Christ and do everything we can to, to live a holy life. Man, you're awesome. I appreciate you. Oh, thank you for having me on. That's terrific. And thank you for listening. I appreciate what you're doing in, in the roles of leadership that you have. I hope that you do take the time to go to Amazon and buy that book or go to uh, Chastity Project and take a look at the other books that Jason and his team have written. They're just so helpful as we deal with the, the mystery of human sexuality. It is a place of incredible truth and and, and joy and uh, exploration. And, and I just think done with a lens of faith, it's, it's, also, it's the ultimate journey. So thank you so much much for listening and we'll see you next time i want to encourage you as you lead this week be faithful to god and generous to others see you next time and remember if you're still breathing you are powered for impact